When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In the last eight states, we picked up enough delegates to get a 700-delegate margin over Kennedy, a tremendous achievement compared with what we expected seven or eight months ago. I went across the street to a tavern called The Buck Stops Here and thanked all my supporters who have made a custom of meeting there on election nights. I placed a call to Senator Kennedy just to wish him well before the returns started coming. His staff reported that he was resting and could not be disturbed. I can imagine how he must feel after thinking he had the election won back in the fall and then failing so miserably. It's been a long, tough, tedious, divisive primary season. Jimmy Carter. By now, Ronnie was under increasing pressure to drop out of the race. We didn't have much support from party officials and office holders to begin with, but now the situation had deteriorated. In the entire Republican Party, Ronnie had only one major supporter. On the day of the North Carolina vote... Ronnie's campaign staff had an emergency meeting in a hotel room in Wisconsin, where John Sears came up with a bold proposal. What John proposed was enormously risky, but nobody had a better plan. Finally, Ronnie said, do it. Borrow the money. I'm taking this campaign right through to the convention at Kansas City, even if we lose every damn primary along the way. Nancy Reagan. I come from a small town the small town of Russell, Kansas. I believe I was born and raised with the badges that come from deep roots and deep faith and an abiding love of the country. I believe I have a certain quality that some may be lacking. I am tough. I understand you have to be tough to make tough choices. So I want to lead America. I'm optimistic about America, and I got here just like you did. I got here the old-fashioned way. I earned it. Nobody gave it to me. Nobody handed it to me. I got here like you did, and I want to help you. I want to work together for a better America for all of us. Bob Dole. There were two more weeks until Super Tuesday on March 2nd. I went to Maryland to campaign. Like so many other states, I was able to say I'd lived here. My brother and sister were born here, but Maryland would go to Cary. The point was to stay alive, and staying alive meant winning somewhere. It was two weeks of insanity, really. Stay afloat, stay afloat. We did these things in the last two weeks before Super Tuesday with the knowledge that this was Mount Everest and we hadn't the right gear. Elizabeth Edwards. As with other key features of the modern U.S. presidential primary season, Super Tuesday's roots do not go all that deep. But it has proven to be the deciding factor in numerous contests over the past 40-plus years. And Super Tuesday is drawing near yet again in the 2020 cycle. Thank you for joining me as I explore the history of this pivotal point in the election calendar on this special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. Before we dive in, I'd like to take a moment to thank Howard, Jess, Robin, and Peter for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Jessica and Howard read the quotes from Elizabeth Edwards and Jimmy Carter, respectively, and when not reading intro quotes for presidencies, 
They are the hosts of Plotting Through the Presidents, a great new podcast available anywhere fine podcasts can be found. The podcast began with Howard's desire to read a biography of each president, and he started a blog to share what he learned. Though he's still working his way through the biographies, the blog took off, and now he's sharing stories of presidential history with his wife Jessica and the audience through the podcast. To give voice to Bob Dole, I turned to Peter, who is the host of Badger State, a Wisconsin history podcast. An avid student of history by day, Peter started his podcast to share his passion with the world through the medium of podcasting. Learn more about Peter, the study of history, and the history of the 30th State of the Union by checking out Badger State. Last but certainly not least, Robin is a friend and colleague at the college which employs me in my day job. We only recently became acquainted, but when I put out the call for someone to read a quote from Nancy Reagan, Robin volunteered without hesitation, and I can't thank her, Peter, Howard, or Jess enough for their help with this episode. Before we get started, just a reminder of what the purpose of this special series is. My focus with this and my other podcasting efforts is on presidential history, not current politics. I hope that this can be part of a conversation that is open to everyone. That being said, I do encourage the voting public out there to explore numerous sources to find out more about the candidates from which you'll be choosing. With the advent of the internet and information at your fingertips, it's become easier to obtain information, but the onus is still on the information seeker to discern whether a source is reliable or not. That's where verifying through multiple sources comes in and being aware of any intended or unintended bias on the part of the source. Bias doesn't necessarily mean it isn't true, as we all have a bias, but it does mean you may not be seeing the whole truth when you just engage with one source for your information. That's why I consult with multiple sources for this podcast, to ensure that the information that I provide is as accurate as it can be. Also, I think it's important to note that the divisive nature of politics is nothing new, as we've already seen and will continue to explore in this podcast. Just because it's been done before, though, doesn't mean that you have to do the same. Though we can never be perfect, we can strive to be good and just and kind to one another. Working towards that ideal has always been enough, and it will be again so long as we get on to it. With that said, let's turn our attention to the history of U.S. presidential politics. With the first contest behind us, we're coming up on another Super Tuesday, But though the term is bandied about by political pundits, few actually know the history behind it. The first instance that I've been able to find in my research of the use of the term Super Tuesday was in the 1976 election. Jules Whitcover in his Marathon, The Pursuit of the Presidency, 1972-1976, notes that June 8th of that year was, quote, dubbed Super Bowl Tuesday by the campaign intellectuals, as there were 540 delegates up for grabs in the final primaries of the season, those in California, Ohio, and New Jersey. Basically, it was billed by the press and the politicos as a win-or-lose finale, the biggest game of the season. At that point, former Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter and his team felt that they needed to win over 200 of those delegates in order to secure the nomination. Going into the contest, he had 905 delegates out of the 1,505 needed. Meanwhile, on the Republican side, President Gerald Ford had still not been able to secure the nomination going into the Super Bowl Tuesday, or, as it was shortened to in a United Press International article from June 3rd, Super Tuesday. 
with 822 of the 1,130 delegates needed to win the nomination. Former California Governor Ronald Reagan was close at his heels with 651 delegates secured. At least with Carter, his next closest contender, Representative Morris, Mo Udall of Arizona, only had 308 delegates. There was still a chance that Reagan could win the nomination outright. As expected, Reagan took California, but Ford was able to win Ohio and New Jersey, which left the president in a strong position despite not securing the nomination prior to the convention. Ultimately, Ford decided to break with tradition and travel to Kansas City, Missouri, three days prior to the convention to lobby delegates in order to prevent an upset by Reagan and his supporters. For Carter, the Super Tuesday result was more decisive. Though California Governor Jerry Brown won that state as expected, Carter secured big wins in New Jersey and Ohio, and Super Bowl Tuesday allowed him to coast into the Democratic National Convention with only the last vestiges of opposition remaining in his way. Four years later, Carter would not have quite as easy of a time, and Super Tuesday would yet again prove to be a decisive factor. In 1980, Super Tuesday again fell at the end of the primary cycle, but instead of just three states, there were eight up for grabs. California, New Jersey, and Ohio were again at the back of the pack, but they were joined in this cycle by New Mexico, Montana, Rhode Island, South Dakota, and West Virginia, along with Mississippi on the Republican side. This time, it was President Carter having to defy convention and hit the campaign trail in order to prevent a nomination upset by Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. In what he noted in his diary is, quote, the first and only time I had campaigned as a president, Carter described the experience as, quote, perhaps my best day of campaigning that I remember. The aura of the office, plus the enthusiasm of a well-organized campaign effort, make a good combination. Indeed, it did pay off for Carter, as, though he lost five of the eight states, he had a 700-delegate margin over Kennedy, and thus a majority of the delegates, leading him to win the nomination on the first ballot. On the Republican side in 1980, by the time Super Tuesday arrived, it was all but done. Former California Governor Ronald Reagan's chief challenger, former CIA Director George Bush, had reluctantly dropped out of the race on May 26th. Representative John Anderson of Illinois had also put up a challenge, but he had left the race on April 24th after the Pennsylvania primary. We'll likely be discussing Anderson's third-party run later on in this special series, but for now, the important thing to note is that by Super Tuesday 1980, Reagan had the nomination all but in the bag, and it reflected in the results. Reagan won all nine states up for grabs that night, and his team had already begun thinking about transitioning to the general election. As a Republican campaign strategist later reflected on Reagan's primary campaign in 1980, quote, We might have thought the campaign could have been run better, but hell, it won. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Despite the fact that there were other dates dubbed Super Tuesday in the past two election cycles, Super Tuesday of 1984 is often noted as, quote, the first official Super Tuesday. 
The reason the 1984 Super Tuesday is referred to as the first official one is that it was part of a concerted effort that stemmed from an idea that had been tossed around in the mid-1970s. As the popularity of primaries was on the rise, this presented logistical problems to campaigns. For example, as was the case in 1976, if Florida was holding their primary on March 9th, then the Illinois primary was seven days later, followed the next week by the North Carolina primary, this meant campaigns would be picking up stakes and moving across the country only to return to the same region a few days later over and over again. More primaries also were proving to mean a longer primary campaign season, which not only put strain on the resources of the campaign, but also on the candidate. Thus, an idea was proposed that primaries be scheduled in regional groups. There were some of these in 1976. Idaho, Nevada, and Oregon all scheduled their primaries on the same date, as did Arkansas, Kentucky, and Tennessee. But it would take a few election cycles before this would really take off, and the planning would get better. Case in point, the six states I just mentioned not only scheduled their primaries on the same date as others in the region, but all six were held on the same day, which kind of defeated the purpose of the regional primary grouping. Whoops. In 1984, though, it was a bit more of a successful effort, and the date of Super Tuesday was moved up in the calendar so that it had more of an impact. The date was March 13, 1984, and the states holding primaries were Alabama, Florida, Georgia, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island. Also included in the mix were caucuses in Hawaii, Nevada, Oklahoma, Washington State, American Samoa, and Democrats abroad. The focus of Super Tuesday 1984 was all on the Democratic side, as incumbent President Ronald Reagan faced no serious challenger, despite concerns that he might be vulnerable after Democrats gained seats in the House and Senate in the 1982 midterms. The frontrunner on the Democratic side was former Vice President Walter Mondale, but he faced serious challenges from a two-term senator from Colorado named Gary Hart and the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Senator John Glenn of Ohio had been considered prior to the Iowa caucuses as a serious threat to Mondale, but his poor performance did not bode well for his prospects, though Glenn did still have hopes for Super Tuesday. Mondale had triumphed in Iowa by a commanding margin with 45% of the vote and with Hart coming in second at 15%. New Hampshire, however, would prove a bit more troubling as Hart, due to his surprise second-place outcome in Iowa, managed to ride the momentum and came out first in the New Hampshire primary with 37.3% of the vote to Mondale's 27.9%. Glenn, after a fifth-place showing in Iowa, managed to come in third in New Hampshire with 12% of the vote. If Mondale was going to retake the front-runner status and put himself ahead of the pack, he needed to take back control of the message as Hart had been getting the headlines and the attention with his claims to be the quote-unquote new ideas candidate and framing not only the primary, but looking ahead to the general election and the ultimate matchup against Reagan as being, quote, a contest between old and new. Mondale's campaign manager, Bob Beckel, came up with a new attack based on a popular commercial at the time, which Mondale decided to use in a debate with Hart in the lead-up to Super Tuesday. When Mondale delivered the line, attacking Hart's quote-unquote new ideas by asking, quote, where's the beef? The crowd got it instantly. It drew a huge laugh and caught Hart completely flat-footed. Journalists also seized on the moment 
because it did seem to capture a weakness in Hart's candidacy. Though Hart won most of the primaries and caucuses on Super Tuesday, Mondale was able to narrow the gap and won sizable victories in Alabama and Georgia, which helped slow the momentum of Hart's campaign. This Super Tuesday, however, would not be the only one in the 1984 cycle. Another large cluster of states holding primaries came up on May 8th when voters in Indiana, Maryland, North Carolina, and Ohio were set to go to the polls. By that point in the contest, Glenn had long since dropped out, along with most of the other contenders. Mondale was starting to pull ahead after important wins in the huge states of Illinois, New York, and Pennsylvania. But suddenly, it looked like there might be yet another viable contender. Jesse Jackson managed to win the District of Columbia on May 1st with 67.3% of the vote and the primary in Louisiana on May 5th with 42.9% of the vote. While at this point there was little chance of Jackson winning enough delegates to win the nomination outright heading into the convention, if he was able to keep up his momentum, there was a possibility that he would get enough delegates to keep either Mondale or Hart from locking up the nomination and they would go into a contested convention. In the contest on May 8th, there was no decisive blow, as Mondale and Hart split the states, with Indiana and Ohio going to Hart, while Mondale was able to win in Maryland and North Carolina. Though Jackson managed to come in second in Maryland with 25.5% of the vote, Hart was close behind with 24.3% of the vote. Thus, the contest dragged on to what was dubbed Super Tuesday 3 on June 5th. Hart had managed to win the three contests held on May 15th in Idaho, Nebraska, and Oregon, and looked to be on the rise yet again. Despite this, Mondale and his campaign had been working behind the scenes to secure unpledged delegates, and by the last week of May, they were able to turn over a list of over 2,100 delegates, both those pledged due to the results of primaries and caucuses, as well as those who had agreed to vote for Mondale to a reporter to establish an air of inevitability leading into June 5th. On that date, voters in California, Montana, New Jersey, New Mexico, South Dakota, and West Virginia went to the polls. Though Hart came out on top in California, New Mexico, and South Dakota, and the voters in Montana decided to support unpledged delegates, between winning in New Jersey and West Virginia and delegates gained through proportional allocation in states where he had finished a strong second, The results of Super Tuesday 3 meant that Mondale had the 1,967 pledged delegates to put him over the top for the nomination. As I'm sure most of you are aware, though Mondale would win the nomination, he was ultimately defeated in the general election by President Reagan. So when the 1988 presidential campaign rolled around, both the Republican and the Democratic parties had competitive races going when they approached Super Tuesday, which would fall on March 8, 1988. This Super Tuesday would finally achieve what had been proposed back in the mid-70s as, thanks to the efforts of the Southern Legislative Conference, 14 southern and border states had all agreed to move their primaries to the same date. In addition to those states, six other contests in other parts of the nation would also be held on the same date. This was seen as possibly the deciding date of the calendar. On the Republican side, President Reagan was term-limited, so his vice president, George Bush, had decided to run to succeed Reagan as president. However, he would not be unchallenged for the nomination. 
Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole of Kansas was seen as being Bush's principal challenger. But when televangelist Pat Robertson came in first in the Ames, Iowa straw poll in September 1987, it began to appear that there might be a three-man race for the Republican nomination. Part of Bush's issue leading into 1988 was his close relationship with President Reagan. Not only was he seen as being, as Jack Germond and Jules Whitcover wrote, quote, deferential almost to the point of obsequiousness. But as Reagan's second term became increasingly riddled with scandals and gaffes, the largest being the Iran-Contra affair, Bush's close ties to the administration became more of a liability than a strength with the Republican electorate. One poll early in the election season found that, while 11% of voters responding felt, quote, that Reagan's endorsement of Bush made them more inclined to support him, 20% said the president's endorsement made them less favorable to the Bush candidacy. As his campaign feared, Bush ended up stumbling out of the starting line, with Dole winning the Iowa caucuses, followed by Robertson, and with Bush coming in third. New Hampshire, however, would start to turn the tide, with Bush winning there with 37.6% of the vote to Dole's 28.4%. Robertson was a distant fifth, falling behind fellow contenders Representative Jack Kemp of New York and former Delaware Governor Pierre DuPont. Beyond just the win in New Hampshire, Dole had hampered his own efforts the evening of the New Hampshire primary when he and Bush had appeared simultaneously on NBC News. The news anchor, Tom Brokaw, asked the vice president first if he had anything to say to Dole, and Bush replied, quote, I wish him well, and I'll see him in the South. Brokaw then turned to Dole and asked him if he had anything to say to Bush. Dole's gruff reply was, quote, Stop lying about my record. As Dole's campaign manager Bill Brock recalled later, quote, I think it, i.e. Dole's remark, was so widely covered that it took the heart out of everybody and everything. Though Dole had achieved a couple of minor wins in contests that Bush's campaign had conceded to him, he was seen as lagging behind leading in Super Tuesday. The large number of contests on that date would either make or break his campaign and Bush's campaign had for months been working up supporting the South as a firewall to protect Bush's chance at the nomination. Dole continued to damage his own chances by dropping out of a planned debate in Dallas, Texas, prior to Super Tuesday. Besides losing an opportunity to prove himself in the debate, the move also was seen as Dole conceding Texas and its large number of delegates to Bush, narrowing Dole's path to the nomination even further. Pat Robertson, meanwhile, had focused his efforts on the South Carolina Republican primary, which was to take place three days prior to Super Tuesday. He publicly announced that a win in South Carolina was key for him, quote, to continue his campaign. Kemp also put in a last-ditch effort to secure a win in South Carolina by pouring funds into his campaign's efforts there, despite being heavily in debt. And Dole was able to secure the endorsement of Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina. However, no campaign was able to best the efforts that had been poured into the state for quite a while by Bush's campaign, in particular by Bush's campaign manager, Lee Atwater. Bush won the state and all of its delegates with 48.5% of the vote, with Dole coming in second at 20.6%, Robertson third at 19.1%, and Kemp a distant fourth at 11.5%. Thus, it looked like March 8th, might settle the Republican nomination. 
The Democratic primary, however, was a bit more complicated. For those who don't know, Mondale wasn't just defeated in 1984, but he went down in one of the most lopsided defeats in U.S. presidential election history. Mondale only won his home state of Minnesota and the District of Columbia, giving him a grand total of 13 out of 538 electoral votes. Thus, after 1984, the Democratic Party had done some soul-searching about its path forward. But in that process, it seemed that the party was splintering between more liberal factions and more moderate and conservative factions. The latter founded the Democratic Leadership Council in 1985 to serve as a counterweight to the newly installed chairman of the Democratic National Committee, Paul Kirk, who had close ties to Senator Ted Kennedy and was seen as representing more of the liberal wing of the party. I won't go too far down this rabbit hole, except to say that the first chairman of the Democratic Leadership Council was Representative Richard Gephardt of Missouri. You'll want to stick a pin in that name, as it's going to come back up shortly. Senator Gary Hart had come out of 1984 as the frontrunner for the party's nomination for president in 1988. But, despite his efforts since, his support seemed quite soft, as he struggled with developing a good relationship with the press and, along with persistent rumors about extramarital affairs, faced questions about his character as voters struggled to get a sense of who he was. Hart's campaign collapsed in May 1987 after the Miami Herald published a story about an alleged affair that Hart had supposedly engaged in recently. Hart's withdrawal from the race opened up the door to numerous other possibilities. The Reverend Jesse Jackson had already decided prior to Hart's exit that he would throw his hat into the ring again, and others who had been considering the possibility soon joined the fray, including that congressman I told you to remember, Dick Gephardt of Missouri. Along with Gephardt, there were other congressional contenders who decided to enter the race, including Senator Al Gore of Tennessee and Senator Paul Simon of Illinois. Though there were other contenders who entered and left the contest, for our purposes, we only need to concern ourselves with one more contender, the governor of Massachusetts, Michael Dukakis. As the various Democratic campaigns scrambled to position themselves going into the first contest in 1988, they faced yet another potential shakeup as Gary Hart re-entered the race on December 16th. Hart was yet again the focus of the media's attention, and no one could predict what that meant for Iowa and New Hampshire. As it turns out, there was little for anyone to worry about, as Iowa saw Gephardt ending up at 27%, while Simon came in second with 24%, and Dukakis scored a much-needed third-place finish with 21% of the vote. The close nature of the vote, however, meant that, despite Hart's re-entry not being as much of a factor as initially feared, no one candidate had been able to secure an early knockout blow. Instead, the trail for the nomination seemed to stretch longer and longer. Dukakis was able to gain a little momentum from a large win in neighboring New Hampshire on February 16th, where he secured 35.7% of the vote in that primary to Gephardt's 19.8%, Simon's 17.1%, and Jackson's 7.8%. The once frontrunner Hart had fallen to 7th place. As with New Hampshire, the contest in Maine and Vermont went to the New Englander Dukakis, while a well-placed attack ad by the Gephardt campaign quickly shifted a Dukakis lead in the polls in South Dakota to a 13-point loss, with Gephardt taking that state with 43.6% of the vote. Dukakis, however, was able to pull out a win in Minnesota. Despite Paul Simon's close regional proximity to that state, 
he ended up third, and Jackson ended up surprising everyone with a second-place showing in the land of 10,000 lakes. After Minnesota, Simon decided that his campaign was essentially over, but politicians in Illinois convinced him to leave his name in contention in order to possibly have him emerge as a compromise candidate or a kingmaker in a contested convention. Barring that possibility, that meant that the Democratic race was now down to Jackson, Gephardt, Gore, and Dukakis, leading into Super Tuesday. Despite Dukakis and Gephardt being the frontrunners, as their wins had generally not been decisive, and, as noted by Christine Black and Thomas Oliphant in their book about the Dukakis campaign, quote, Unlike their typical Republican counterpart, a Democratic National Convention delegate is most likely to have been chosen under a system known as proportional representation, which we discussed in our last special episode. Thus, it was still very much anyone's game heading into Super Tuesday. Also, as discussed last episode, the fact that there were so many candidates over such a wide swath of geography worked to some of the candidates' disadvantage. As Jack Germont and Jules Whitcover wrote in their book on the 1988 campaign, quote, Super Tuesday should have been a golden opportunity for Gephardt. Indeed, it was fair to say he fit better than any of his rivals the original prescription written by Southern Democrats for the nominee, moderate enough in his views to be marketable in the general election, but still clearly a national rather than a regional candidate. Gephardt, however, had been forced to withdraw some of his campaign resources from the South in order to win Iowa, and other candidates had moved into the region in the meantime, so that, once Gephardt's campaign was able to turn their attention and resources back to the South, they were playing a game of catch-up rather than being firmly entrenched. Dukakis, on the other hand, was skilled at bringing in campaign funds and thus had plenty of resources that he had long since been diverting to the South. Jackson, meanwhile, enjoyed a demographic advantage. Again, from Germont and Whitcover, quote, In 45 of the 167 congressional districts being contested in Super Tuesday 1988, blacks made up more than 20% of the voting age population. And unlike the 1984 campaign, this time there was no white candidate to compete for that vote. The black political leaders who had supported Mondale in 1984 were now fully in the Jackson camp. Increasingly as Super Tuesday neared, it seemed that Gephardt was in trouble as yet another of his rivals was drawing on his geographic advantage. Being from Tennessee, Gore made a pivot in his strategy to paint himself as the Southern candidate and presented himself as the moderate alternative to Dukakis. Dukakis, Gore, and Gephardt ended up in a back and forth as March 8th neared while Jackson positioned himself above the fray, even admonishing his fellow candidates in a debate in Atlanta that they were allowing the Democratic primary to potentially, quote, devolve to the level of the Republican debacle. Jackson was increasingly looking like a, if not the, frontrunner, but this conceivably worked against him on the actual date, for, as a contemporary Southern political insider is quoted as saying at the time, quote, Gore's going to get a lot of votes because folks are scared to death thinking about what happens if Jesse just walks away with this thing. That's right. Prejudiced white voters were scared that the African-American man might actually have a chance at the nomination. Super Tuesday 1988 proved to be a big night for Jackson, Dukakis, and Gore. Dukakis gained just over 26% of the popular vote from the contest overall and won in Florida, Idaho, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Texas, and Washington, 
along with American Samoa, giving him 356 of the 1,307 delegates up for grabs in the contest. Jackson ran strong as well, capturing 26% of the overall vote and coming out as the winner in Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, and Virginia. He left Super Tuesday with 353 additional delegates. Gore was the surprise of the evening, as he came in with just under 26% of the overall vote and won the states of Arkansas, Kentucky, Nevada, North Dakota, Oklahoma, and his home state of Tennessee. He captured 318 delegates that night. Gephardt, however, was effectively done after Super Tuesday. After such a promising start, he only won his home state of Missouri and underperformed everywhere else, winning only 13% of the overall vote and 93 delegates for the convention. Though he would remain in the race, it was clear after Super Tuesday that Gephardt was not likely to be the Democratic nominee in 1988. Super Tuesday, however, proved not to be the decisive night that everyone had imagined on the Democratic side. Though Dukakis was the clear frontrunner, rather than narrow the field, Super Tuesday had made Jackson and Gore even more viable. The regional primary, rather than settling the race, had further complicated it, and thus, in the aftermath, states started to pull out of being in Super Tuesday moving forward. As Germain and Whitcover wrote, quote, The experiment had been an interesting one, but a failure nonetheless. For the Republicans, though, Super Tuesday 1988 was much more decisive. Vice President Bush won every contest but one. Pat Robertson won the Washington caucus. The idea of the Southern Super Tuesday had largely been pushed on the Democratic side, but it turned out to be the Republicans who benefited from it. The last viable contender for the Republican nomination after Super Tuesday was Bob Dole, and that viability was hanging on by a slim thread, only possible by Dole coming in as a close second in some of the contests. Shortly after Bush's win in the Illinois primary, Dole threw in the towel, declaring that, quote, we need a Republican in the White House, and if it can't be me, it will be George Bush. There are plenty of other Super Tuesday tales to tell, but I think the ones that we've covered help to demonstrate both the strengths and pitfalls of the idea of Super Tuesday. What this Super Tuesday will bring, we'll have to wait to see. But as always, I hope this has proven informative and well worth your time listening. I'd like to thank Howard, Jess, Robin, and Peter again for providing the intro quotes for this episode. Links to Plotting Through the Presidents and Badger State, a Wisconsin history podcast, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's B-L-U-B-R-R-Y dot com, along with sources used for this episode and past episodes of both the special series on the history of U.S. presidential elections, along with the regular narrative episodes. If you don't follow me on social media already, I hope you'll like and follow me on Facebook at Presidencies, on Twitter at Presidencies89, or on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast, all one word. You can also reach out to me with any questions or comments via email at Presidencies Podcast, again, all one word, at gmail.com. If you're listening through Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, I hope you'll consider leaving a rating and review to help new listeners know why they should give this podcast a listen. And I hope you'll join me around the beginning of April for the next special episode when I take a look at the history of presidential campaigning. While there's a long history to it, presidential campaigning has looked much different in times past. As always, thanks to all of you who have supported this podcast by leaving ratings and reviews, contributing books for my wish list for research for future episodes, 
and sharing information about the podcast via social media or to friends and family in person. Finally, thanks to all of you for listening. And until next time, take care, dear friends. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st.